This is the Ether Review, a talk show passing the components of the Ethereum global computing platform and its ecosystem. Building on a basic knowledge of the blockchain, we seek to understand the mechanics behind this new generation computing network and the services it powers. This week's episode features four interviews from uh, from some people who I met while in Australia. Some of them are Skype interviews, some of them are in person. The problem was that while I was at the Tyro Fintech Hub interviewing, there was demolition going on right next door and a lot of the audio that I captured wasn't usable. But I was connected to a bunch of people who I tracked down on Skype and managed to interview. And any of the recorded interviews that I wasn't able to use, I'm going to track those guys down on Skype and uh, and re-record those. So first up today, we hear from Nick Addison of Finhouse Labs alongside Connor Svensson. Nick and Connor are contracting to Othera, which is a startup that's attempting to represent asset-backed securities in a blockchain context. Then we hear from Emma Weston of Full Profile. Then we hear from Tim Lee, who's heading up the online piracy prevention platform, Veridictum. Finally, John Pillou of the aforementioned Othera. All right, well, Nick Addison and Connor... Svensson. Connor Svensson. Yeah. So, thanks for joining me. Would you explain what you guys are doing in the space uh, in general, and then we'll drill down to the individual pro- projects as we go along? Yeah, sure. So... Yes, yeah, so it's Nick, and I work for Finhouse Labs, uh, and we've been working with a client, uh, Athera, who's been trying to tokenize loans. So what exactly that is, in, in financial terms, they're uh, effectively syndicating and securitizing loans, but in, in blockchain terms, they're effectively uh, tokenizing uh, a loan, so you can slice a loan up and then create a secondary market to, to sell a loan. So that's been, uh, we've been working on that for a number of months now, and we've got a, a working demo um, against the live Ethereum blockchain. Finance Labs is focused on the blockchain piece, and, and Connor's been working the blockchain, but also creating that exchange. So, yeah, we'll talk about that. Yeah, the, the, the intention there is that we yeah, ha- have an exchange where um, in, investors of the, the, the different types out there they can actually you know buy and sell tokens, so it becomes a marketplace uh, for actually selling these tokens that were re- originated as part of, part of these loans and so that's kind of like the, the, the core proposition that uh, Othera is offering with it with its platform there and um, the, the, the intention is really it's a new type of tradable asset which previously investors have not had access to. So in essence this allows a, uh, an institution which holds a uh, which holds large quantities of private debt mm-hmm. to um, to Carve that up into granular chunks and uh, and sell that to uh, yeah. to it's consumer investor. It can be an institution, or it could be a peer to peer lender. Uh, so they're certainly looking at that alternative uh, finance space. But yeah, some uh, a traditional lender. They've got these loans on their on their balance sheet. Um, you know, and traditionally they're, they're stuck with those. So now that they can take part or all, but ideally, you know, they don't want to get rid of all of it. Someone still has some skin in the game in servicing the loan. Um, but effectively, what it means is, so when that loan repayment comes in, uh, it goes through in, in through the Ethereum platform, and it 
basically disperses those funds out to the token holders. So there's a uh, there's a couple of elements here. There's a token, but then there's also the revenue distribution as well, the, the return yeah. on, the, on that. Yeah, and there's a couple of different types of tokens. So you can basically create tokens for different uh, um, asset classes or different risks of, of a loan. So you could, for example, have secured, unsecured. Uh, so you could, you could take a, a normal loan to a, to a business and then from a banking perspective, they could slice that up into tokens which are secured and unsecured, which will have different prices. So uh, the secured ones, you'll get a, a less interest rate, but if you want to take on more risk and go for unsecured, you'll get a bigger return, but then risk of default is you, know, you, won't, you won't get the return back. What's the mechanism, the uh, the business mechanism for for driving this? I mean, do do you have you have you organised partners partnerships with any major institutions? This is an area which Althea is working very hard at the moment to establish those relationships. So there's you've got the underlying technology platform and uh, the the IP associated with it, which is uh, really aimed at the different lenders. And then there's the exchange for um, yeah. Trade, trading those tokens. So there's kind of a, a, a couple of parts to it in that respect. What is it built on? Uh, like, what is the underlying technology? So at, at the moment, because we're, we're in the sort of proof of concept stage, so it's, it's more about proving the functionality. So the, the initial uh, piece of work there was done um, working with, with Nick's team. They were working with Ethereum. Uh, and actually through that, we identified that uh, for, from the Java perspective, there's kind of a gap within the actual um, uh, Ethereum ecosystem for actually supporting those applications. And uh, as a result of that, I've created a library called Web3J, which um, provides the ability for Java applications to actually talk to the Ethereum blockchain. It's, it's a whole, whole new library to connect to Ethereum. Yeah. yeah so it, support, it supports another language. So traditionally, the, the the problem always faced with application developers when they first get up and running with Ethereum and so on is, first of all, they need to run up a client. Then when they have a client up and running, then they need to actually talk to that client. And now that's a way, with, with the Web3.js library, that was uh, kind of the original implementation in JavaScript for talking to Ethereum clients to do things like, you know, uh, to interact with smart contracts and everything else. Now, the, the Ethereum came along to offer similar functionality for .NET and then uh, Web3j offers similar thing for Java developers because although to speak to Ethereum clients, uh, there's a uses this uh, messaging protocol called JSON RPC, which well, at the surface looks quite straightforward. To actually talk to the smart contracts, there's a lot of underlying complexity that you need to deal with, such as the fact you're working with 256-bit numbers, and, and then also these these uh, the, the actual application binary interface encoding and decoding, which is the really the, 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 the encoding used for talking to the smart contracts and in, interpreting the stuff coming back. So these sorts of problems are really what, what it addresses so that people can say, okay, I've got a application you know, uh, in, in Java and I want it to talk to a smart contract. And then well, what, what my library does is it facilitates that. But then I've also enhanced it beyond just that initial um, piece for talking to the clients, but also also generate the code so that in effect you can wrap a smart contract with Java code so that for application developers, what they're doing is that they see their smart contract as Java code and my library takes care of all the plumbing behind the scenes for it.
Wow, so that's huge. So you've been working on this independently of the larger kind of Ethereum. Yeah, yeah. So the, the, the idea really was to, um, after seeing what an Ethereum did, was to kind of fill that gap because I come from a Java background. I've spent 15 years working with Java across enterprises in various various areas of finance. And to, to me, it was very much so a, a huge gap in the ecosystem because people, there's, there's a, a whole you know, host of different Java applications in the enterprise. And uh, it's, it, it just seemed like a, a no-brainer that we needed something there. So I thought I'd better get something written so that we can actually you know, make, make use of it um, as well ourselves. So this is all rolled up into the Ethera uh, project. It's it's a separate project from it, but it's technology that Ethera will be using as well. That's 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 kind of where it is because I think ultimately we want to make sure that uh, where where you have something that's quite generic like this, it can benefit the wider community. Um, we we have we, within Ethera itself, it has uh, it has a lot of plans focused on businesses for actually you know we, around the asset tokenization and so on, which is really a sort of proprietary method of doing this. But in terms of identifying where you have tools that would be useful for people generically and you know get more people using the ethereum platform we, th- we thought it's great for that there uh, and, and actually it's it's also f- f- i found it to be very useful a, a great use case for working with the uh, infura platform which obviously is part of it, you guys as well because for things like integration testing or just having nodes there that you want to speak to it's just really handy just to have something in the cloud that you can point to without having to think about setting up uh, Ethereum clients, which again, you know, helps kind of lower the barriers to entry for people who don't really know the ecosystem or don't want to have to spend the time with it to actually get up and running talking to it. So, Nick, you mentioned that you had a uh, you had interest in creating a fiat batch. Yes. Token. So, so one of the problems we have is you receive interest payments is going to come through the traditional payment channels. Uh, so then, effectively, then we pass it into into the, the blockchain world. Uh, and effectively, we, we end up issuing, emitting events which give credit instructions basically to the to the token holders. But ideally, we would like the payment to become the fiat payment to become on the blockchain. So we're we're very much interested in creating a fiat token. People have been doing some work in this space. Uh, so we saw last week at, in Shanghai, um, Santander had their Fcash, which was tokenizing euro on the on the blockchain. One, one, one problem with that, though, is it's only one bank issuing. It's a bit like the, the Ripple or Stellar model where you have a gateway or a bank is issuing a token against the deposits they hold. Uh, ideally, and that, that effectively, then they can get priced. So, so in something like Ripple, you have market makers sit in the middle and say, well, uh, the you know, one euro at Santander is worth different to one euro held at, say, Deutsche at the moment. Um, and you'll have different price difference. But ideally, you don't want that price difference. So uh, having, having done some work in Australia on something called the new payments platform, so it's immediate payments, which uh, is, you know, a lot of countries have either done it or looking at it. Uh, effectively, the model there is you have a central bank and you have um, exchange settlement accounts. So ideally, you'd want what, what, what we call a, a settlement institution. Ideally, a central bank would hold those funds. And then you'd have financial institutions plugged into a smart contract who can then exchange these coins um, or these tokens, uh, essentially exchange currency. But the real currency is actually held in a reserve bank or a central bank or what you know, uh, effectively a central settlement institution. So what is the advantage? Uh, I mean, how do you get 
How do you get all of those parties to play ball? Uh, yeah, good question. Um, and I think it's more, if, you, if you're a big bank, you can probably get away with it. You can say, well, I own 40% of the market or 30% of the market and that's going to add some value. But ultimately, those customers are going to want to make a payment to another bank or, or to one of their customers who bank with someone else, in which case it's not going to work. So in order to, to, to facilitate payments uh, to different customers who bank with different financial institutions, yeah, there has to be some level of collaboration. In fact, we saw a little bit of that uh, last week as well in Shanghai. It was interesting, uh, Sparebank from Russia is doing a, a partnership. Initially, they're starting with uh, interbank messaging, uh, so partnering with uh, the Central Bank of Russia and, and other partner banks, but they're also looking at doing inter- interbank payments. Uh, and I guess what we're looking at is a bit beyond that, is putting it out into customers being able to do that payments and very much focused on well, what are the financial services you could offer. So me being able to transfer, say, an Australian dollar token to you is a credit transfer, but we're also looking at um, how could you offer other financial services, so things like direct debit capability, where I permission you that you can take a certain amount of money periodically from my account, uh, or escrow services, where you can permission people to uh, hold, We, Connor and I will permission you to hold our funds, or in Ethereum world, you can even take that even further, um, an account doesn't have to be owned by a person. It could be owned by a smart contract. This sounds so. This sounds absolutely amazing, and especially the fact that it's taking place in Sydney, which I did not realise until I came here on your kind invitation. Nick was a hub of Ethereum development and and cryptocurrency development in general. Why do you think? Uh, why do you think that is happening in Sydney? What What's the draw? Um, so it has. So the like the Ethereum. The first Ethereum meetup group was before even Ethereum was even live. It was you know, like three years ago. Um, there's certainly been an emphasis when when I went to Consensus 2016 uh, earlier in the year in, in New York. I, I learned a lot, a lot of, of you know some of your colleagues from Consensus and many other people, and yeah, really wanted to come back and share what I learned and trying to you know build the the community in Sydney. So we. Uh, with the other organisers, we're like, right, we're going to do you know, dedicated monthly meetings and we you know, really you know, get our act together. Um, but along with the meetups, we've also done uh, full-day workshops for developers. And the idea is to go across, you know, at a very thin level, across a lot of content and to boot people up the learning curve effectively. Um, and, yeah, I was very pleased to see. So we've done a couple of those now. Uh, they're pretty intense, but... Yeah, there's not. It's very hard for a new developer to come in. There's lots of technology, and some of these technologies are a year old now, and no one uses them anymore. And when you're new and you're looking at old blogs, which happen to be you know from a, a year ago, which are high in the search engine because everyone's linked to them, is now out of date. So it's really getting people's you know sharing the knowledge within the community. But it was very pleasing yesterday to see some people who were on our training course. A month ago, have been working on it and building on their on their products, and are now looking at creating a startup from that from that knowledge. So it's, so it's seeding the community, and then the idea is that you know they'll learn other things and they'll feed back in, and then you know you end up with this feedback loop where everyone's you know um, you know feeding knowledge in and, and building a broader ecosystem, like like what Connor's doing, for example, like creating that the new library. You know, there's a there's a there's a there's a gap there. Build a library, share it, uh, and other people adopt it. So, what are the kind of attendance that you've uh, you've had at your meetups and at your uh, at your um, training? The workshops, yeah. So, uh, 
we're sort of you know 50 up to 100. I think we got over 100 at one stage. I think that was when we were focused on the legal world. So we had a mix of uh, half the room of lawyers and half the room of uh, nerds. Um, and there's also business people are getting quite interested as well. The workshops, I think the first one we had 90 people come to the workshop, but there was a lot of people who, who weren't necessarily developers who soon were well out of their depth and, and left um, or, or stayed to the end but didn't really get it. Um, the last one we did, we had about 40 people and, yeah, they were, you know, developers and, you know, they were people who, you know, who got it and, you know, as I said, a lot of those people are, are, are running with, um, you know, building on Ethereum. Fantastic. Um, so where can people find out more? Uh, so the the Sid Ethereum is the the, the meetup group, um, and then yeah, there's uh, financelabs.com.au. Yeah, and uh, also Orthera is uh, O R T H E R A dot com dot au. And for Web three J, if you just go to Web three J dot io, that'll take you to the GitHub page. Uh, it's also now linked as well on the official Homestead documentation page as well. So it's kind of you know it's, it's starting to. Uh, I guess be in the right places so that people hopefully when they find out about hooking up to Ethereum clients they'll see okay here's an easy way to do it. And now Emma Weston of the agricultural finance platform Full Profile. Based in Sydney. Um, so I'm originally from Melbourne, um, and despite where I work and, and what I do these days, I'm not actually off a farm, but I am a farmer these days. Um, so no, just a girl from the burbs in Melbourne who decided to make agribusiness a career. So how did you actually get into agriculture and horticulture and all of that kind of stuff? Yeah. Um, so I started off life as a lawyer and, um, very early worked out. In fact, I was still at university when I worked out. I probably didn't want to be a lawyer, um, but I persevered and I went into, um, in Melbourne, they have the the article system still. So you go in and become an article clerk and basically that's just a, um, you know, form of, um, you know, torture for a year where you, you know, you, you're the lackey for the firm. Um, so I did that for a year and it wasn't actually the, the fact of being a lackey that bothered me at all, but it just, I realized very quickly that the whole working towards being a partner in a law firm was not what really motivated me. And so uh, at about that time, I got a call from a headhunter, which was lucky, and the Australian Wheat Board was looking for a junior lawyer. So I moved across there in-house, still as a lawyer, and worked there for about three years in the law um, division of AWB, and then moved into management. And so, so what drew you to primary production? I think it was the constituency base it was I, th I think there's something very um real about agriculture about farmers and i just really enjoyed the people the people side of it was amazing there were people that were you know of the earth sold of the earth uh called it as it was and didn't care if you were a lawyer you went to a private school you know none of that really mattered um it was all just very fundamental and that's what i really enjoyed so tell us about Full Profile and, and where the, uh, the impetus for developing this system uh, came from. So Full Profile was formed in October last year. We've just turned one. 
it came out of uh, the, my co-founders, Bob McKay, Ben Reed, and myself were, were at a time where we could come together to form this particular business where uh, been in, both, all of us had been involved in another business called Ag Farm. Um, which Bob had founded way back in the early 90s and had grown from being uh, a simple agency business for the Australian Wheat Board into being Australia's largest independent grain broker and one of the largest pool managers, uh, which is like funds management for grain in Australia, um, a significant seasonal finance provider to growers. And all of, uh, all of us, both Bob, Ben and myself, were all shareholders in that business. And we had progressively sold that down to the point where last year um, Bob stepped down as CEO from Ag Farm and, you know, effectively we could all come together and form full profile. During our time at Ag Farm, we engaged in all manner of, um, like all elements of the supply chain, you know, not only were we, we farmers as well, but we traded, we brokered, uh, we financed, we even exported, worked in the logistics, and of course we consumed. So we really ran the gamut of the agri-supply chain. And the, the genesis of Full Profile was to come together to look at ways in which we could work within that supply chain, work within agribusiness, but use technology, um, particularly new technologies, to unpick, unpack, or hopefully solve deep systemic entrenched problems within the agricultural sector. So what problems in particular uh, have you identified in the agricultural sector that you feel, that you feel solutions can be built for uh, by, through, through technologies like blockchain, et cetera? Um, great question. So we we certainly didn't come at it from um, from 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 blockchain. Um, we we came to blockchain rather than from blockchain. Um, and the initial problem that really captured our interest in this space was the the risk that growers bear uh, and farmers bear in the supply chain. We were quite focused on the beginning of the supply chain, um, at least initially. And that particular risk is that farmers when they deliver their entire year's produce to a buyer, particularly in um, the the broad acre and uh, lower value commodity markets, so I'm not so much talking about horticulture at this point, uh, they effectively work all year, they deliver their whole year's produce to a buyer or one or more buyers, and they don't get paid for what they deliver when they deliver. And that exposes them to the counterparty risk of the buyer and this is this is was seen as just the way things were done, which meant that just the way things were done included annual insolvencies and liquidations on the buyer side, where the grower was left with no uh, no assets so no commodity because they had already delivered that in, and they didn't get paid either. And these are particular problems that happen annually in Australia and also overseas. So we set about wanting to solve that particular problem to begin with, uh, de-risking that transaction, moving through to real-time settlement was was what we were looking for. And we looked at the inherencies of uh, blockchain. And in this instance, what we're working with this year is a private instance of Ethereum um, to, to solve that particular problem. We then realized that there was additional functionality and inherency within distributed ledger technology that would allow us to build business logic in the form of smart contracts. Um, and some of the smart contracts that were built, for example, uh, in the grain purchase area, allow for third parties to get paid at the same time as the farmer gets paid. And that includes research organizations, for example, when levies are deducted 
at the time of a delivery, they can go straight through to the research organisation. It includes endpoint royalty managers. So when the farmer declares which variety they have delivered, and if there is a royalty payable on that, that also can be deducted and remitted directly to the endpoint royalty manager. So those were the sorts of problems that we started uh, looking at whether we could solve. This is awesome, Emma. I uh, I grew up on an orchard in uh, in oh, Hawke's Bay. Yeah, well, I mean, that, it's funny. That's an apple ex- orchard, or? an apple orchard. Yeah, it's exactly where I am right now, <laughs> actually. And uh, and yeah, and and my father, who who ran the orchard, had this this one guy who was. I mean, it was great to to be able to sell to this this uh, this business uh, called Sean. Uh, actually, no, I probably can't say what it's called. Um, <laughs> but this guy was consistently for years, uh, six months in arrears on all of his uh, on all of his payments, and it was a it was a profitable business. He was yes. just uh, he was just stringing uh, stringing the old man along. So, yeah, I mean, this when I when I read the uh, the information you you sent me about full profile, I was like, wow, this is something that could really make a massive difference to uh, to the the actual producer. I think so. And, you know, that's where we started, but we actually have vision to take this all the way through the supply chain. So you're absolutely right. Uh, You know, those buyers who are using uh, farmers as their source of credit, essentially, um, you know, the uh, the solution we're building does expose um, that particular form of, of, um, of trade. And our argument would be, well, that's 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 a good thing. That form of transparency is actually a good thing. Farmers should know whether or not the buyer has sufficient funds available at the time of making a delivery, uh, and whether or not they're going to get paid. So, you know, we think that's a really good a good form of transparency. Um, it also means that you don't care who the buyer is because you don't have to do due diligence on the buyer anymore as a farmer. All you have to do is know that they're on our platform and therefore before you lose control of your commodity, uh, the funds will be verified and you'll know about that and you won't actually deliver that commodity if there are no funds there to pay you. So, you know, we're hoping that that is a a major innovation that that leads to other innovations down the track. Um, One of the other areas we're also working in is inventory finance, looking to streamline the the financial transaction because quite often those buyers, yes, they don't have the funds on their own balance sheet to acquire the commodity from the farmer. So they have a relationship with the bank whereby they borrow money from the bank in order to pay the farmer and they sell that commodity directly to the bank. So that commodity ends up on the bank's balance sheet, in fact. And we're looking for ways to minimise the risk that the banks currently uh, bear in that respect and also to streamline through the smart contract functionality that whole inventory finance experience, which is pretty clunky, very paper-based, largely Excel-driven and quite risky. So this looks like there's the potential to bring value to virtually every participant in the agricultural industry. Well, I think that's our purpose. Um, you know, as as CEO, I'm not looking to to cause losses to people. We're we're trying to build wins. Um, yeah. So so you know, we're we're really looking for where where are the, the the value pockets in the supply chain that can be exploited to everybody's benefit. Um, and we we take that all the way through to the, to the consumer, of course, by looking particularly at provenance. So the use case that we're working with and what we're building is both tracking the digital asset, the financial transaction in respect of that asset, and also the information that surrounds that asset in the form of track and trace or being able to tell a story about the product that I have bought as a consumer. Uh, yeah, the, the reason that I, uh, I say this appears to bring value to um, to every participant in the industry is that usually when we talk about these 
technologies, particularly distributed ledger technology, you know, um, and uh, the decentralization movement or the technologies associated with the decentralization movement, is that we think of them as being disruptive. Whereas in the agricultural industry, there's no one to disrupt. There's no monopoly here. You've got a collection of businesses which are attempting to work together in the most efficient way possible. And this is a new tool that can enable them to uh, to achieve greater efficiencies. Absolutely. That's, that's exactly the way we see it. And probably I need to replay this conversation at some point and capture those lines that you just, um, the, the way you just put it, because, you know, for us, it's really about, um, I sometimes call it logical disruption. Um, you know, it's not disruption for disruption's sake. It's really thinking about, is there a better way of doing something? Um, how do we de-risk what has become quite risky um, in terms of the transaction base and the transaction flow? And where can we bring in standards and cooperation so that we all stand to gain as a result of the, the system that we're building? Who are you partnered with in, uh, in developing this? And, and do you have a a roadmap for deploying this? So at the moment, we're obviously at the beginning stages. I said earlier that we're, we're, we've just turned one. Um, so we are very much at the beginning. We would acknowledge that we will have a pilot running this year. Um, and we're developing our technology in-house at this point. It may get to a stage where we have to bring in partners to assist um, achieving the, the vision and the roadmap. Our focus has been very much on the developed world, so first world supply chains. Um, I, I make the distinction because there is a lot of good work that has been done um, in social enterprise and in the developing world um, coming out of distributed ledger, um, the distributed movement generally, um, but that's not really our area of focus. Our area of focus is very much uh, first world supply chains. So, and very much around agriculture. There are obviously opportunities in other commodities. However, we are looking at the platform that we build being across commodities, starting with grain and then moving into livestock next year. Uh, we are also starting in Australia, our home base that we understand very well, but we have already uh, started investigating a similar um, use case in the Canadian market and we've developed that and we've put that on our website so that other people can have a look at that in terms of how we assess the Canadian market and the opportunity in Canada and we're looking at similar markets in the US, uh, also in Europe, um, interestingly even in Finland. Uh, there's a lot that's been coming our way. We've obviously been on quite an awareness building campaign. What we've been saying to people is we, we want to tell you all what we're doing. Um, we don't want this to be an under-the-radar project. And that hopefully means there will be opportunities for collaborations and partnerships down the track. And I see that particularly in 2017. We're just working out the 2017 blockchain work stream at the moment. And I see a lot of piloting, a lot of experimentation as we build out the the five phases of the supply chain uh, as we see it, which is taking it you know all the way from the grower through to the consumer. So could you explain what those five stages of the supply chain are? Yes. So the supply chain as we see it, and there's lots of different ways that you can look at it, but we look at it in five key stages, thinking about how we develop up the technology. The first phase is from a farmer to a buyer. So that's the primary transaction. And the to give you an idea of the scale of, of that market globally, uh, the first that first transaction annually each year is worth around about 4 to $5 trillion in agricultural commodities. So it's a very, very large market. 
The second stage is the financing of that transaction. So supply chain finance normally starts at that point and can continue all the way through the supply chain. So we bring in finance quite early. The third phase is what we call trade to trade. That's where the buyer who bought the, the commodity from the farmer then may on-sell that into to another trader, to another buyer. And interestingly enough, the commodity that came from the farmer could turn around in that trade-to-trade circle two times, three times, five times, six times. It just depends upon the commodity. It's not necessarily moving physically, but on a paper basis, it, paper basis it's been traded. Eventually, it finds a home and it enters the fourth phase, which for us is export and processing. We put those together because they're particular challenges when we look at blockchain. Uh, they both that, that stage involves a change of form of the asset, so it's going from a raw commodity through to uh, a more finished product, some kind of processing involved, but also change of jurisdiction. So there's particular challenges there. And the fifth and final phase is the to-consumer phase. So that's getting that finished product through to a consumer. And that's really where we start wrapping in the provenance aspects of what we're doing. So provenance, and this is, uh, this is one of the things that people can really get behind is they want to know where, they're, uh, where the, the products that they're consuming came from, particularly because we know that uh, there are some ugly truths hiding, uh, <laughs> you know, hiding in the background there. Uh, and while, sure, maybe we don't really want to know, we do have this kind of deep sense of guilt that maybe we should know. And so there are particular examples like uh, like coltan in uh, in consumer electronics, right? And that's a particularly uh, that's that's way down the track. That's an extremely difficult provenance chain to complete, right? Yeah. But wines wines an example of a, a pre existing provenance system where you have incredibly in depth auditing procedures yep. throughout the manufacturing process to make sure that what comes out the other end is the same as what came in. So which uh, industries and which commodities do you find having? Uh, do you find that there are challenges in the in that manufacturing process to maintain that uh, that pro- chain of provenance? So I think that um, there are many forms that provenance can take, and our approach is to develop up different models for provenance, not just have a one size fits all. I think it does depend upon the commodity, the value of that commodity, and the length of the supply chain. Uh, There are also, as a consumer, different consumers have different expectations and that all needs to get taken into account when building out a provenance model that actually can stand the test of time and has value all the way through the supply chain and can be built upon through the supply chain. Particular examples that we're working on, we are working on grain. Now, grain is an interesting one because we may not really care as consumers where our loaf of bread comes from. That may not be necessarily, uh, you know, top of mind for us. It, you know, the, the provenance model there might be as simple as is it organic or not, if that's what I'm interested in, and some way of um, being of verifying the organic status of the loaf of bread. Depending upon how fussy a consumer might be, they want, might want to get to regionality or something like that, and all of that can be captured in, in what we're doing. So I think there are differences in provenance. Wine, by contrast, uh, we've already had different people who participate in the wine industry come to us with ideas around how that provenance system can, in fact, be improved. You're right, it's, it's quite mature compared to other systems in the food and fibre space. 
However, there is an awful lot of counterfeiting and fraud uh, that, that's still going on in the market. And that's something that has really surprised us as we've been talking with uh, the industry and getting to know our customers better and what their expectations would be. The amount of counterfeiting and fraud is a real concern for business, not so much a concern that the consumers are expressing. Um, they've been saying, well, I just think that it, if it's organic, it should be organic, or if it's um, if it's labelled something, it should be what's what the label says. So there are some different motivations there, I think, Arthur. Uh, sticking, and I know this is, uh, and I, I don't want to t- go too far off what Full, full Profile is doing, but um, looking at the wine use case, millions and millions of dollars are spent on auditing wineries every year. I mean, that is like massive. And the, uh, I mean, the Yellowtail Winery, I know that they have uh, 100 tanks, maybe even 200 tanks in their million litre tank farm. The sheer volume of what these guys are producing is something on the scale of petroleum. And managing the uh, and auditing such a massive industry is incredibly expensive. Could you give us a and I know this is this is maybe even a meaningless question, but could you give us an order of magnitude of how much you could reduce those auditing costs? I, I think, and I might might not be the right person to to answer um, and to put a value around how much a, the cost reduction could be. But if we think about what we're doing in terms of building out a supply chain where provenance is actually embedded into the transfer of value and the transfer of the asset, and we add to that information at each stage of the supply chain, the idea of um, having to reconcile information at different points, of having to build in artificial checkpoints with third parties uh, and certifying agencies and people having to come in and do uh, various aspects of the auditing and the checking process means that the, the, the cost reduction is going to be significant in in my view. From a wine perspective, I don't actually know how much they're spending at the moment. I would trust that it would be a very, very large number. And I don't think you'll ever get away from health and safety inspections and all those sorts of things. But what we're really starting to talk about is the power of what the smart contract can do and also the power of or perhaps the convergence in the future of IoT and blockchain as well. So how much can we do with sensor technology and, and other forms of technology, not just blockchain alone, that will reduce these types of costs? And I'm sorry I can't put a number on it, but you know, that that's where I guess my thoughts are going at the moment. Okay, no, that's I mean it's fine. You know, I mean I, I don't know why you would know about the I, I can't put a number on it. I used to work in uh, <laughs> used to work in wine. No, I'm, I'm not an expert <laughs> on the wine industry, but it, it's it's fascinating and it certainly has come up. I mean, we've had uh, people from that industry come to us with very unusual stories around fraud and counterfeiting um, and also with, you know, amazing ideas. And I think that's the thing with what we're seeing in terms of what Full Profile is building is if we can get the the supply chain platform right, then there's going to be a lot of innovation that can happen on top of what we're building. And that's what's really exciting. And it's very hard to roadmap exactly how that will play out. However, I'm pretty sure that we don't have all the answers and we can't be an expert in every industry and every market because each one has its idiosyncrasies. But what we can do is provide the the platform to begin with and allow that to get built on over time and built out over time. And particularly as we see the emergence of dApps and other innovations in the field, there's, there's lots of others who will be contributing to that, that cost reduction and, you know, that value piece. 
So what are the, the other countries and what other industries outside of Australian borders are you, are you looking at moving into potentially or are you identifying opportunities in? So first of all, Australia is a great testbed for us to work with. Um, it has a, a great depth of agriculture as we know, so um, that's, that's fantastic. And it provides a fairly tight uh, and well-understood environmental and regulatory framework for us to work in. So we really see Australia as very fundamental to what we're doing. However, from the very beginning, we have built the platform and the, the scoping of the product to be cross-commodity and cross-geography. Uh, cross so next year, we'll be looking to move into livestock in Australia, but we'll be looking to take the grain pilot we're doing this year overseas and test that in an overseas market, probably Canada, which is a, an early identified market for us, but potentially into the US as well. Other areas that have um, come to us in terms of commodities is not just the food part of agriculture, but also the fibre. So wool, cotton, those, you know, those, that, that forms part of what is agriculture as well. We tend to think food, but it's food and fibre. So there are lots of opportunities there that we're keen to, to move into that would lead us into the garment industry in, in the end in particular and, and industrials. And also really out-of-the-box um, ideas have started coming our way. Uh, I was speaking to someone from Thailand yesterday that's looking at a particular project that would like us to be involved with there. Uh, Finland has as a particular issue that would be fantastic to work on as well. So I think there's lots of opportunities. There'll be a lot of experimentation in the next uh, 12 to 18 months. It's interesting you mention uh, cotton and textiles because I was just speaking recently with a garment uh, manufacturer distributor who was talking about how he can track his the production of his garment from uh, he can he can take it from the purchase of textiles to the point of production and then to the point of distribution right uh, all the way up to the door but it's that point of purchase of the textile it, it's everything beyond that is is just darkness but the idea that from a completely different direction you're building out supply chain provenance it seems like increasingly there might be sufficient uh, sufficient impetus to bring uh, bring transparency to all these different areas of the supply chain that um, that we do wind up getting to see exactly where everything is uh, everything is coming from. Yes, yeah, it's so interesting. There are so many conversations like this going on, uh, which is really exciting. I think you know people are coming at it from different angles, and, and we're just providing you know one particular way of looking at the problem and building out a, a possible solution. But we're you know we've been talking with a lot of people. The the ideas are not just coming from from full profile. It's uh, it, it's a really active um, investigation that's underway at the moment. So how do you manage the finances and how do you manage those instant payments? I mean, we can see, uh, you know, I, obviously it works with cryptocurrency, but I presume that you're not intending to build out a, a, crypto, a fiat-backed cryptocurrency and, and give people a platform to transact in that. I presume you're actually transferring balances that refer to a, a balance at a central, uh, a, a central uh, kind of escrow agent. Is, is that sort of ac accurate? Yeah, that's right. Look, this is this is an area where there is obviously uh, it's a moving feast, right? Um, and it, it's also quite jurisdictionally based. We've got different jurisdictions around the world that are more advanced than others in terms of their adoption or um, putting on the, the agenda of, of the idea of digital currencies versus cryptocurrencies and the regulation in that space. So it's something that we need to be very mindful of and and look to in terms of where 
might be the most favourable uh, jurisdiction to, to be working in. That That is something that we look to. Uh, in terms of what we're doing in Australia this year, we, we don't have the capability to, um, to, to completely settle uh, on on the on the blockchain in with digital wallets, it's just there just isn't the, the the ability to do that in terms of customer readiness and and, and a whole lot of other reasons why. Um, so in terms of what we're doing this year, we will be I'd, I'd probably say that's almost similar to a simulation. So we'll be using digital wallets to do that, but um, that will be a, a simulated um, solution on the blockchain. What will be coming in will be the live data. Uh, from the farmer and the waybridges and the buyer and so forth. And so we'll do the, the settlement of the commodity. But then effectively we have to create a message to uh, the traditional banking system to make a payment to the grower. And the the buyer and the bank that are involved in this particular pilot are, are able to process that message in a way that allows for same-day payment um, for, for the grower and allows the grower to know that the funds are there. So there's some... There is a bit of proxying involved as we're going through the these development phases. Uh, in the future, the idea would be that there is either a suitable currency to work with or that we need to have the ability to back into an exchange so that we can bring the funds back to the farmer or to the supply chain participant in the fiat, the fiat currency of wherever they're based. So that's one where it is a bit of a moving feast and I think think that we will see more resolution over the coming 12 to 18 months, but it may be early days yet to know what the eventual solution might be. So one more question, Emma, who are you partnered with in this, uh, in this endeavour? In terms of building out the, the agri-blockchain, the, the supply chain for agriculture? Uh, well, I'm thinking, no, no, uh, more in terms of uh, legacy businesses that are like banks and uh, like banks and suppliers and buyers, et cetera. So the the main buyer partner um, who we're working with for our pilot this year is uh, Fletcher International, which is a large sheep meat exporter, but they also buy and and trade grain. Uh, they're located up in Dubbo in New South Wales. So they're they're our main partner this year. We'll be trialing it with them and then looking to expand to other buyers next year. So I anticipate we'll have um, what, what I probably haven't said earlier and may not have come out in, in earlier conversation, Arthur, is we have a traditional commodity management platform that sits alongside what we're doing with blockchain. So we have a number of buyers, brokers and other participants in the market who are a part of that, a part of that solution already. So they're the, the, the normal domestic Grain, grain brokers in Australia, the the banks, all the banks are. We're not partnered with a bank at all. We 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 just are um, involved in discussions with them all to explain what we're doing and to look at ways of improving existing banking process and system to affect the solution that that we're looking to bring to market. So there's no formal partnerships in that sense with a bank. This does look like you're perfectly positioned and have identified a, a brilliant market and have the ability to execute on a really in a revolutionary industry change it's it's really awesome to see and I can't believe I wasn't aware about it before <laughs> well it's 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 really exciting for us um, it's exciting to be able to leverage years of domain expertise uh, in the technology space in a way that's really meaningful so I think it's no accident that companies like ours exist at this point in time and that ag tech more generally 
is is coming to the fore. I think it's it's something that makes absolute sense, particularly in Australia. What's so amazing for for companies like like ours and people like myself is the ability to integrate into the technology community with this particular use case and get so many other people enthused and excited about it and contributing, you know, in in ways that make it possible for us to deliver. So it's it's really something that we're building in-house. It's probably going to have to be uh, contributed to on a much larger scale next year once we get through this particular pilot and uh, probably after the livestock pilot as well. I think then we'd be pretty clear we've met our milestones and that, you know, this, this is in shape to take globally. And at that point, we really have to build out the capability of our development team. I mean, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm more. I'm. I'm. I, always, I try to always be recording. You never know what interesting stuff. You oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, I, I, yeah, we recorded a. Uh, we made a feature film called Fifty Four Days, which is uh, um, it's a post-apocalyptic psychological thriller of five people trapped in a, in a 1960s nuclear bunker after an attack on Sydney, and uh, as food and water runs out, they're forced to make the impossible decision of either one dies or all five die. So it's a romantic comedy, obviously. Romantic it's, comedy. It, no, it's not. It's a, it's a deep psychological thriller that twists and turns and all sorts of stuff. So, um, yeah, we, we won six awards internationally on the film festival circuit and we've got UK distribution and all sorts of stuff. No way. So, yeah, it's an independent movie. But, yeah. What, uh, so what was it called? 54 Days. 54 oh, Days, shit. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to click your link. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, um, yeah, I mean, we had great fun doing it. We had 116 people involved in the movie. And had some you know, really high quality people involved in it. How did you manage to coordinate so many people working on an independent film? <laughs> How do you coordinate a startup? It's the same thing. It's the it's the you just you, because everybody's so passionate about it. And I mean, we had an eleven day shoot with the film, and with a Hollywood film, they normally do about half a minute a day, and we were doing about nine minutes a day, which is just it's so quick, it's I mean, it's ridiculous. So I mean, basically, with everybody involved. Yeah, you know, we've just sort of said, right, you, yeah, you're going to be better at this than I am. Um, you've got this set of skills, so why don't you just, uh, you know, you give me your best shot as to what you can do. Don't cost me too much money, but you've got a complete free reign as to what you do. So all the key people just got a stipend for the for the 10 days that we had. Everybody got the same, and there's a little bit at the back end for everybody. So it's, uh, you know, but I mean, it's an independent film. It's more about just getting awareness for, for people and that sort of thing. And just, uh, you know, it's, it's going to take a making while. something good. It's making something good that, that everybody's proud of, you know. And uh, I mean, because, you know, so I, I, actually, I actually wrote and directed the piece and I co-produced it. But we had, as I say, we had 116 people involved in the project. And we, we, fun, we crowdfunded $54,000 for that. Um, the total budget, I mean, I had to tip some money in the end. It was about 75 altogether, nice. which for a feature film is nothing. No, it's not. It's nothing. But uh, yeah, yeah, we've got some good reviews and, and that sort of thing. And some people have gone on to some bigger and better things, which is good. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. Okay, yeah. Uh, well, we'll do a, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll bust through the, the intro here. So, Tim Lee, author of the upcoming Down the Rabbit Hole, Discover the Power of the Blockchain, and, uh, and also the founder of Veridictum? Yes, that's right, yes. Uh, I mean, Veridictum is... Uh, is obviously the main, the, the main core of all my activity, and that's a platform that we're developing for film and video producers to protect them from theft and piracy and looking at new distribution and productivity models. So we're focused on that video space. There's so much friction in that space at the moment. And so what, uh, what platform are you building it on? 
We're building it as a combination of Bitcoin and Ethereum because we're building in some smart contracts linking into royalty allocation. Because one of the big problems that exists is with video, often there can be music associated with it and they don't, uh, there's not a, an effective allocation of royalties automatically. So we're trying to create a smart contract front end and back end that automatically links in. When money comes in from YouTube, for example, it'll disperse the monies. So that's all part of the, 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 the smart distribution part of it. So, uh, so can you explain how Veridictive works and what, the, uh, what value it brings to the table that isn't, isn't okay. already there? I guess um, our big, hairy, audacious goal is to reduce film and film piracy by 80%. That's our big, hairy, audacious goal. Wait, for a start, where do you get 80% from? Well, in terms of, if you think of the spectrum of piracy, you've got the hardcore piraters and you've got those that are softcore piraters, okay? And the softcore piraters do it for a variety of reasons. More often than not, uh, it's because they can't get hold of the content or it's because they can, right? And so it's one of those issues that one has to approach it from two ways, a deterrent effect coming from the bottom and a distribution effect coming from the top. So it's the idea if you make it easier to actually access the content that's fairly priced, you know, reasonably priced, and you also have a deterrent effect, then you're going to hit about 80% of the market. That's the way we view it. The hardcore guys, they're always going to do it. Whatever you do, there'll be cat and mouse all over the place, and you've got to throw legal resources at those. So this represents a sort of a management structure from a strategic point of view for the, the big studios and those sorts of guys. This is the 80-20 rule, right? That's right. That's so pre it's Pareto optimality. You spend 20% of your resources getting that first 80%, and percent getting the final 20%. It's exactly that. That's, that's the way that we've, we've viewed it. That that's our big, hairy, audacious goal. But I mean, you can't boil an ocean. You know, you've got to just start off small, <laughs> right? And it's, it's one of those things as a startup, which is uh, you know, being self-funded in that sort of area right now, although we're going for our first round of funding uh, towards the well, beginning, of, beginning of October. What it means is we've got to look at the problems that we can sort out first. And the problem that we're really focused on is on a thing called freebooting. And freebooting is where... Uh, it's social media theft, from a better way of saying it. So somebody will download a YouTube video, they'll strip all the producer content, then put it up on Facebook. That's the easiest way of saying it. And so as a result, um, the, the parties that actually steal the videos, they're the ones that get uh, content that drives the sales funnel for, that, for that, uh, um, that group. And then, so what it means is that the likes of YouTube plus the video producer lose money. And there was a report that came out midway through last year that showed in the previous 30 days, out of the top 1,000 performing videos on Facebook, 725 were stolen, with a loss of 17 billion views. Now, that's just the tip of the iceberg, all right? So the issue is that, um, you know, everybody's, yeah, the, the YouTubes and the producers are losing money. Net-net, that equates to about eight and a quarter million dollars, just for those videos for that time period. So it's, and it's a much more pandemic problem that's, that's going right across the whole social media platform, whether it be yeah, Instagram, Twitter, yeah, Snapchat. You know, stuff is just being stopped. It's just being lifted left, right, and center. And so, you know, there's a lot of friction that actually exists that's just causing problems. And having produced a feature film and having got involved in video content, I know how much effort goes into it. And it's frustrating as hell. I mean, we had our movie pirated, not as much as others, I have to say. But there were was, there was some, some buddies of mine that produced a feature film called Wormwood, 
which they spent four, week, you know, four years at weekends producing. And it became this real cult film, post-apocalyptic zombie thriller. And it was the most um, downloaded movie on BitTorrents for about two and a half weeks. And this guy just started saying, you're eating my effing breakfast, is, is, was literally the way he sort of said it. And it just, it's just this whole sense of frustration that's driving me to sort this out. Um, not only in terms of, I mean, obviously as a startup, you want to make money and all that sort of stuff, but this is the driver in terms of, you know, it is hard work producing good quality content. You know that with the, with the podcast that you produce, the amount of effort you've got to go to to get good quality content. It's hard work. And when people download it and just basically steal it, you know, it's frustrating as hell. So how do you actually do it, though? So I'm, I'm thinking about this now. Yep. And the first thing I think of is you make a video, take a hash of it, store it in the blockchain, um, and then use that as your, uh, your, your proof that you were the first to... Uh, Absolutely. I mean, it, essentially, I mean, we've got a couple of patents that we're about to go for, so I've got to be careful how much I can say, but the, the, the broad brush approach is very much that we hash it to the blockchain, digitally fingerprint it in such a way that even if the video is chopped and changed, we can still actually track the video. And the notional idea is that, you know, and we're, we're talking with, uh, uh, with some of the video platforms right now, is that, you know, how, you know, that we're looking towards getting them to be able to, as the video is uploaded, they can automatically then identify who owns it and if it's the right party. If it's the right party, let it go. If it's not, then defer it. So the idea is we want, because we're platform agnostic, it's the idea of saying, right, this is, you know, this is actually for the benefit of the video producers. And we know it's going to be a tough ask because we know the likes of Facebook, for example, with the greatest respect to them, who they do a fantastic job, but they're making money from the advertising of movies go of films going up there and videos going up there. And they're getting, you know, they're getting the engagement. So we recognize there's going to be you know, uh, a, a soft, difficult issue for them in terms of actually dealing with it. But... I mean, you know, we're, we're trying to be completely agnostic of any platform so that everybody wins that is a video producer. And that, those are our customers that we're going for, and that's who we're trying to sort out. How long have you been working on this now? We've been working on it since November last year, and we've just we've soft-launched our first product, which is a very basic product, which is a, a film script... Uh, Film script, well, it's created, it's a creative package registration. It's film scripts, TV Bibles, character Bibles, TV show formats, that type of thing, as the foundation for the actual video content that comes out. So we soft launched that literally four weeks ago um, just to, to test some hypotheses in the market of will people actually adopt a blockchain based registration service rather than a traditional registration service and it gives us the reason to talk to the, to the, to the film community which, is, which has been great. Um, so we launched that four weeks ago. We're going to be aggressively launching within the next, probably the next six weeks coming up to November uh, when we actually launch that more aggressively because we're just getting, just finally getting some um, you know, little bugs and that sort of thing ironed out from, from uses. So um, yeah, so we've been working on this since November and uh, we're just going for the first round of funding, so fingers crossed if that's successful and with the investors we're talking with, then we'll be ramping up really strongly in the early new year. No way. So how's it going? How's uh, how's the uh, 
How's the user engagement? How have you found that? Yeah, it's been because we've soft launched it. We've soft launched it to you know to groups that we know. So they've you know they've actually given us good feedback, and we're building. I mean, it's like anything in the in the startup world. You start off with the MVP, you know, the minimum viable product, and then just build it up from there for issues that uh, that you think you know that you you believe by talking to the audience as to, as to what they want. So we're gradually adding features and, and building it up as we go through. And then and we're working concurrently with that on all the hardcore tech, linking into the smart contracts of royalties, linking into the, um, you know, to the actual, uh, you know, uh, look at watermarking of the actual video. So we've got the proof of concept for a disclosed uh, watermark and trackability on that side. And we're, we've just brought on a deep video tech guy to really help us get into the, into the really heavy, uh, the heavy duty video tech to actually enable that to be completely hidden. But um, evaluated in the best way. So, where can people find out more? Well, on the website, it's veridexon.io. It's uh, you know the uh, early stages. As I say, that is the 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 initial product that we've actually launched. Um, we are expanding that you know, a lot more and uh, going to be actively looking for good quality talent, as is uh, is everybody. But uh, yeah, we believe we've got a super sexy uh, idea that we we really want to solve, uh, and it's about solving the problem. To be honest, yeah. that's the thing that's driving me. And, and if we're successful, it'll be great. And if not, then I'll uh, I'll look forward to being on the streets of Sydney just busking or <laughs> some, something like that, you know, or uh, or well, playing extras in movies. Well, I mean, hey, at least uh, at least no one can no one can pirate bust, busked movies. No, that's true. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, and I suppose also hopefully I'll be able to live off the massive royalties of down the rabbit hole as well. No, I mean, I no can one. imagine they'll be huge well it's actually interesting since we've launched the crowdfunding campaign um, I've actually had uh, somebody in China who actually wants to translate into Chinese and distribute it which is which would be amazing I mean China's a massive market as you know you just haven't come back Um, but uh, but we have actually got a Twitter competition uh, because one of the things that we've actually found is the quotations from within the blockchain community are so damn boring, you know? We need some really inspiring quotations. So we've got a Twitter competition out there uh, for people to actually just to send us through really good quotations from themselves, their own quotations, and we're putting it out there. And the people that actually that get voted for on Twitter for the best quotations will actually win a free book. It's, yeah, it's a bit of publicity for them, and it helps us just sort of get the crowdfunding campaign out as well. This is awesome because you're really crowdfunding, like you're crowdfunding comms right now. That you're doing. This is kind of my job. Yeah, I know, I know. I mean, and it's, I mean, we've got things like um, you know, Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Are actually, they're actually in the 1951 movie, the Disney movie, not in the book, and they were actually from a John Bison poem, but they're dressed as schoolboys. So we've got the Tweedledee and Tweedledum talk crypto, and it's the idea. I do some cryptocurrency trading on a swing basis in the evenings. And so, you know, there's a reward, for example, that I'll teach people how to get onto the cryptocurrency space and just look out there, some of the things to look out for. So all these types of rewards all linked into um, Alice in Wonderland. And the thing that I discovered today, which really uh, uh, I found incredibly ironic, is that Lewis Carroll, who actually wrote wrote Alice in Wonderland, actually got a first-class honours in mathematics from Oxford University. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and that amazed me. When I saw that, and I thought, because I'd been linking down the rabbit hole with Alice in Wonderland, and then just getting that, that linked together, I thought, this is serendipity. I wonder what, you know, because there's a kind of, there is a weird abstract kind of side of Alice in Wonderland. 
It's oh, oh, oh it's it's. I mean, it, it's actually interesting because the 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 Mad Hatter's Tea Party, evidently in a lot of asylums in Victoria asylums, Victorian asylums. Sorry, they actually had tea parties where people dressed up, because it was a, it was a form of therapy, and so he's actually taken a lot of because it was written in 1865. So he's taken a lot of the reference points from his particular his point in time and put that into the book. It's really actually really interesting. I'm, I'm trying to do more research on it because I find it fascinating. Because I also thought part of, the, part of the Mad Hatter was the idea that they used lead in the manufacture of... It's mercury. Yeah, it's mercury. mercury. It's mercury. And it actually caused, it did cause genuine, did cause genuine madness. Ah, well, but, but, but it's interesting because, I mean, with, with, down, with, with the idea of down the rabbit hole, when you do go down a rabbit hole, you actually come across this massive cavern underneath and that is exactly the allegory for, for the blockchain because, as you know, everything's under the surface. There's so much going on that, that we all know about because we're in that bubble. But people outside, because the blockchain is impossible to describe in five words, it's such a complex technology, you have to get really underneath it to actually understand. And this book is designed for non-techies because, I, I, I mean, I, I understand the techie, the technical side and I translate it, but I'm not a, a heavy duty coder. I've done some coding, but not a lot. And so this is all about translation. Cool. Oh, well, so veridictum.io and down the rabbit hole, discover the power of blockchain by Tim Lee. Uh, when's, that, when's that coming out? It's coming out on November the 17th. But the crowdfunding campaign goes until uh, October the 17th, so it's really tight. But, uh, you know, they, we're, we're going to be building this weekend uh, a link to actually to support it in Ethereum and in, and in Bitcoin. Because Kickstarter don't take it, which is really frustrating. So down the rabbit hole.news. Perfect. Awesome. All right. Cheers. Awesome. Fantastic, Tim. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> <laughs>
I suppose that's the thing, provide liquidity in the marketplace and, and ultimately transparency. So that was really my, uh, my main objective. <laughs> I know it's a bit of a long-winded uh, explanation of how I got here, but that's, that's kind of where it came from. So can you, uh, can you break down the opportunity that you see in that, mm. uh, in that secondary market for these uh, credit-backed securities? Digital uh, securities. I, digital yeah, securities. Yeah, exactly. Um, look, I suppose the, th- the, the problem that we're solving um, in a nutshell is uh, there's essentially three problems. Uh, first of all is uh, transparency. So the uh, marketplace lending market and, and other securitization markets historically have been challenged by lack of transparency. It was, it was really the thing that brought around the global financial crisis, big tranches of securitized assets uh, with no visibility of what the actual assets were, whether the, what the performance was like. And so that, that was the, that's the first uh, problem that we're addressing. The second one is market liquidity, which is what I just mentioned before. So it's the ability to trade the assets. So once you're invested, you know, you want to be able to liquidate your position if you feel the need for whatever reason. Um, and that's currently really not possible in that market space, whether it's marketplace lending or whether it's securitized assets. And the third thing is that um, the global market is really suffering from a, a long-term uh, lack of yield. Um, you know, very low interest rates post-GFC uh, means that uh, there's essentially no way of uh, generating revenue on your uh, invested, uh, you know, cash assets, uh, unless you want to take you know, investments into um, illiquid assets like um, property and um, th- those types of things. So they're the three things that we're trying to address. And what our solution does is essentially um, provides total asset provenance. Once we digitise the loan, we can track um, the full history of the loan asset or the asset-backed security right from the inception of the loan i.e. the loan application, the creation, the credit application, the, the you know credit reports from reporting agencies, the security pack, right through to the full repayment history um, of the loan. So it gives this you know this wonderful view of what the asset is actually comprised of and how good or bad that asset is. From a liquidity point of view, once you digitise an asset and, and or tokenise the asset, it's as tradable as Bitcoin or Ether or um, any of the digital cryptocurrencies. So it's instantly tradable. It's very low friction and it makes um, you know, the potential for a low friction, highly liquid market quite possible, uh, which is great for the investor. And, and the final thing is about yield. And uh, yield is a really tricky thing. You know, when you have structurally low interest rates, um, there are very few things you can do to leverage yourself up in the yield stakes. Um, however, uh, the digital assets actually do provide a mechanism for leveraging yield. Um, now, I'm not going to go into the technical details of it, but certainly it's possible for both lenders and uh, so the originators of loans and also investors in the loans um, to capitalise on a thing, an asset that essentially appreciates in value over time. So uh, it's, a, it's allowing people that are investing in cash to leverage themselves up in yield. And, and that's essentially what we and what we do and the problems we solve. So, uh, so in leveraging, though, doesn't that bring in uh, the same systemic risk that we associate with the global financial crisis? Um, I use leveraging um, in, a, in a different description. So um, normally when you talk about leverage in financial terms, you're talking about you know, borrowing, uh, leveraging versus borrowing you know, through the mechanism of borrowing. Yeah? 
Yep. So your you know your debt to equity ratio is increased. Um, what I'm talking about here is the ability to um, to increase your yield through the, the way that you trade the asset, uh, rather than um, applying debt or leverage to the actual asset. Um, what we're the, the the system that we created actually um, substantially de-risks the process of investing. Um, it would it, you know if if all lenders used our um, um, tokenization process and digital asset exchange, um, there would be virtually no way that um, the global financial crisis could happen because you'd have total transparency of all of the assets um, and, and all the transactional histories of all of the assets, essentially at the click of a button, as opposed to having to um, trawl through you know, 10 or 20 or 50,000 um, know, opaque loans, as was the case with the, the GFC. Why do you feel that the Australian market is the place to uh, to start an initiative like this? Uh, look, I think uh, it probably wouldn't have made much difference which market uh, that I was in. Uh, I think the opportunity is largely the same. I think this, this, the problems are sy- systemic and global, um, and I think that those those three uh, fundamental problems exist in all markets. Um, Australia is a uh, is a you know, it has its challenges, but it also has its upsides for for setting up startup and, and doing development. Number one, you know, we've got some really good uh, uh, tech developers here with some pretty pretty amazing skills. Um, the, I suppose, the cost of development in Australia is probably um, substantially lower than if you were um, trying to do the same thing in Silicon Valley, just because the you know, the market is not there sucking up the the, the capacity of the, the tech developers. Um, so. From that perspective, it's actually a pretty good place. The challenges are finding investment is difficult in Australia. The investment community um, has a much smaller view of the world. Um, that could be good, but it also could be bad. You know, when we're looking at the size of the market in Australia, you, you put together budgets of what the potential for a business is, and uh, as soon as you start seeing revenue numbers in the hundreds of millions of dollars, um, investors look at you like you're crazy. Uh, because they don't see the Australian market as that big. But the reality is, if you're in the US or the UK, um, those are actually very small numbers in far as, as far as projections go. So, um, you know, it can be a bit challenging from that perspective. Uh, but but as a, as a general rule, it's it's probably quite a good place to, to build the tech. It's not always the ultimate home for the tech, if that makes sense. That does make a ton of sense, actually, uh, because you do have, well, you may not have a great uh, investment environment. You do have what uh, what at least I saw when I was there was a, a thriving tech scene and a really engaged population. Oh, look, absolutely. You know, we, we've got, uh, you know, our business, um, Athera, we're based in the, uh, the Blue Chili Tech Incubator. And, uh, you know, so when, when you're trying to build a startup, uh, being in a community of like-minded souls, all trying to solve the same challenges um, and going through the same process is a, is a, is a uh, it's short of saying empowering process. It's a, it's a positive process, right? Um, if you're out there on your own, you know, slogging away, uh, you know, in isolation, it's 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 pretty soul destroying at times. So you know, we have I mean, there's, and there's a bunch of tech incubators in Sydney uh, where I'm based, and you've got. Blue Chili, you've got Tyro, you've got Fish Burners, you've got Tank, you've got Stone and Chalk. So there's a big community being built around startup and tech. Um, so pretty, there's a lot of people very engaged in that process, which is which is great for the community. Do you anticipate any uh, any 
institutional resistance to the uh, the development of a system like this? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, that's one that we're that we've been wrestling with a little bit. Um, you know, where the rest of the fintech market is all out there spruiking, you know, disruption to the banks and disruption to the establishment. Um, I don't necessarily see it that way. Um, I see us as very complementary to the banking system and to the finance system. Um, I don't see um, why we would be seen as threatening. Um, you know, part of part of the um, you know, if we're looking at the banks in isolation of what our blockchain solution could provide them. We actually have the ability to address some of the bank-specific problems, which are you know all around you know Basel III and prudential regulation and liquidity coverage ratio. And by digitising loans and turning them from long-term risk uh, propositions into short-term risk propositions, there's the potential to actually take them off the table and remove them from the calculation of liquidity coverage ratio under Bar Three, which actually would significantly lower their cost to serve and their cost of capital. So they should actually be. Um, you know, positively embracing this type of technology rather than seeing it as a threat. And just because the tech comes from um, an external provider doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. It doesn't necessarily mean it's disruptive to the banks. It can actually be very positive. But, um, and uh, and I don't mean to grill you here, I'm just, this is just... No, no that's okay. Um, so when I, when I think of an institution or the, uh, uh, or a, a business structure like the banking industry, mm. I think of an empire that has been allowed to build because it hasn't experienced great systemic shock until very recently. Changes like this, or at least changes like this, can potentially uh, upset these these fragile, uh, stable environments or previously stable environments mm. that aren't used to these these alien conditions uh, that that they uh, yeah. they have to have to weather. Yeah. Look, I think, uh, you know, having worked at a couple of the, the, you know, very large banks, I mean, like RBS, one of the biggest banks in the world, um, one of the, their greatest challenge, I think, is the speed at which they can change. And I think that a lot of the people that are, um, I suppose, in charge of the strategy and implementation of new technology um, come from a very corporatized background and not a fast-moving entrepreneurial startup kind of background. So um, their biggest challenge or the biggest risk is not moving faster, you know, and, and so the, the startup community and the fintech space sort of dances around them pretty quickly. Um, I don't necessarily think that that's going to cause <laughs> long-term massive problems. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think that the, the fintechs are picking off some of the the fringe activities of the banks. I don't think that fintech will ever really um, steal the core banking function. Does that make sense? Absolutely, it does. Absolutely. You know? um, I don't know why that. I don't know why they would actually feel um, particularly nervous. Certainly in Australia, I, I don't think so. Um, you know, maybe there's more reason to be a little bit nervous if you are in the US and you've got some of these, uh, you know, for example, alternative funders like um, you know Lending Club and uh, Prosper and Avant and uh, some of those marketplace lenders who are now of a scale which is actually starting to um, you know, eat into the, uh, the bread and butter of the banking system. But the banking system over there is so huge. I mean, if you look at Lending Club, uh, you know, as you know, if you look at their stats, um, even with their challenges, they're still writing a billion dollars uh, of, of loans a month. 
and, and that's significant on any bank's uh, numbers. So, but in Australia, is that likely to happen? Mm, not certain. Certainly not in the next three to five years, I don't think. How does the Australian banking industry differ from the US banking industry? And uh, I mean, apart from the obvious ways you just described. Mm. Uh, and, and, and yeah, and, and how does that? How do you feel like that may affect the uh, the deployment of of the technology developing at Ethera? Uh, well, there there are actually different challenges. Like this, the the challenge with the Australian banking system is it's uh, it's extremely concentrated. So you have you know four major banks. Um, you know they're the ones with scale. There are there are a bunch of other smaller banks. Um, uh, they they don't necessarily play in the same markets as the big banks. So. You know, if you're trying to deal with a Commonwealth Bank or a NAB or an ANZ or a Westpac, then you have your shot. If it doesn't work out, there's no one else to turn to, right? Um, you know, from that perspective. So if you want to go to a second tier bank, you know, you've got the banks of Queens, Bank of Queensland, you've got Bendigo Bank, and some of the, the the second tier banks. Are they going to provide you the scale you need? Are they going to provide you the tech you need? Uh, not really sure. So your market is limited. Although the big players are big, the market is still limited. In the US, the banking system, uh, you know, the structure of the banking system is a bit different. So you have a lot more large banks, you have a lot more international banks. You know, you don't just have four choices, you know, you've got 100 choices of large banks. Um, and then if you look at the way uh, the, the, the national system of banking works in the US, um, every state has its own uh, banking structure and even one brand of bank across different states is not um, centrally owned, like if they're actually different companies, and so they they essentially run independently across state borders. So when you're looking at dealing in a banking system in the US, you know you've probably got 500 banks that you can actually talk to. You know, like if I was selling tech, you know there would be, you know there'd be years of of sales possibility uh, and business development to get across all of the potential customers. Um, you know, and and we saw that. Um, you know, I was just recently at Finnovate and uh, and Altfire New York a couple of weeks ago, and you know, you listen to the the, the fintech guys, you know, um, doing their pitches, uh, you know, particularly at Finnovate, and you know, there was a, there was a company there saying, oh, yeah, look, you know, we've been out on a sales program this month, you know, we've already signed up um, 200 banks to use our services, and you and you just think, my God, we've just signed up 200 banks in the last like 24 months. Right. Well, it's just a, it's just a completely different proposition. Now, those banks won't won't be top tier banks, but there's still somebody using your service, right? So it still gives you the possibility to to deploy and to to scale at some sort of level, get some traction. So very very different environments. So how do you, how are you uh, how are you funding this at the moment? Uh, at the moment, we have uh, we have a couple of investors. Um, we you know they're, they're private investors. Um, yeah, they're in the finance space. So, you know, at the moment we're quite well funded. We're about to do a, uh, a Series A type raise to allow us to um, commercialise our blockchain product, um, uh, both here in Australia, the UK and the US. Um, as soon as we have that uh, completed, and we're hoping, hoping to have that done by sort of Christmas or just after, um, we'll soon move into the market, um, start getting complied and uh, deploying a commercial enterprise version of our services. Well, this sounds fantastic. I really looked forward to seeing mm. how it develops. It's an exciting time. Yeah. Very exciting time for it. <laughs> it's exciting for everyone. It's, it's awesome. Um, and, uh, I mean, especially in Australia, because you guys have this, this really – there's this tight-knit community there where everyone seems yeah. to know one another and, uh, and 
and everyone is working on such cool stuff. It's uh, it was really exciting just to um, to hang out in the Tyro FinTech Hub and meet a bunch of those people. Um, obviously, I didn't see uh, I didn't see a there, but uh, but uh, but Finhouse Labs are, you, are, are, are contracting to you guys right now, aren't they? That's correct. Yeah, they they've uh, been uh, you know a core part of our development program for our blockchain product. Uh, you know, they do a fantastic job. They're on the kind of the, the leading edge of uh, of plot, blockchain development and tech. Um, yeah, they've been massively helpful. But I think that uh, it's it's quite interesting though. Like when you you know spend a lot of time listening to the to the blockchain space and you know uh, finding out what trying to find out what everybody else is doing. And uh, I suppose the common thread that I'm seeing is that. Even the big guys that they're, they're talking talking about product, they're talking about plan, they're talking about strategy, they're talking about deployment. Uh, but there's actually not a lot of people that have actually built anything that's actually up and running. Um, even the big guys. So um, it's really quite interesting and quite surprising. Um, you know, we're probably uh, one of the first in the in the market with a live proof of concept that we can demonstrate that's running on the Ethereum blockchain and you know, from what I've seen, and again, Finhouse Labs is, you know, quite a big contributor to this, this process, is, uh, is that, you know, we're massively ahead of the curve, you know, in, in our tech and our development and our deployment, which is a bit surprising because there's some pretty well-funded global businesses out there, you know, trying to operate in the space. So I think Australia is really well ahead of the curve um, in some respects, although the space is very small still. Yeah, that was that's definitely the impression that I got while I was uh, while I was in Sydney. It was mm. it was really exciting to see. Actually, there was there were a ton of mm. great uh, projects working out of there, and just networked with that whole uh, with that whole crew. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the next step is really to see what's going on in Europe and uh, and what we don't know about over there, because the strange thing is people really don't know about the uh, about the Australian scene. They don't know that this is mm. uh, that how mm. advanced Australia is. Especially mm. in their use cases, right? Yeah, it seems to be there's a lot of people, um, you know, that they take the tech, they start building something, but they don't actually necessarily have um, a problem in mind that they're trying to solve. So they're going to try and, try and apply, the, apply the tech to, or try to find a problem for the tech, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, you know, we've, we've come at it from the other way. Um, Australia seems to focus a lot more on solving the problem. And I think that part of, that actually comes from part of the, uh, the well-developed startup community, right? So because there's not a lot of funding, you have to be really, really uh, uh, good at doing this, the, the, the startup process. And, you know, the fundamentals of startup is identify a massive problem and then find a solution, right? Don't build some tech and then find a problem to, to apply it to. So, you know, if you, if, you, if you have a really big problem, then you, you'll get the funding, um, you know, people get behind you. But... Uh, Australia is a long way away from the rest of the world. So, you know, our challenge is actually getting ourselves up and out of Australia and, and into the, the big marketplaces like the UK, and Europe and the US and Asia. You know, there's a, yeah, that's really the challenge. But the tech is good, you know, down here. Um, most of the incubators out there um, are, are techies building tech and then trying to find a problem to apply it to, right? Because you know, that's, that's the, the place that they've come from is building tech, right? Um, the Blue Chile Incubator is more around about, is more about um, business people and entrepreneurs trying to solve problems. Um, they're not necessarily techies. 
um, and essentially they've got a, they start with a really good use case and then they then they apply the technology to the use case to solve the problem right? so it, it's it's it flips the process on its head if that makes sense and and that's probably what you're seeing in New York and US Silicon Valley there's lots of developers there's lots of these tech guys you know they've come from the tech side they know what their tech can do you know that they, they they know all of the capability but they don't actually have the workflows and the use cases and the problems to solve you know one of the one of the very first um, ethereum meetup groups that I that I went to here in Sydney um, it was just it was actually run out of the the, uh, the Tyro uh, fintech hub and the guys are standing up in front um, and saying, you know, here's this cool thing, this is what I can do. Okay, who's got any great ideas to, you know, problems to solve, right? And then everybody's looking at each other <laughs> and going, well, what do we do with this thing? And, they, they, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and they're, they're kind of looking at it and going, well, we can do the, you know, the, um, the hello, the greeter. We can make that and we can do this and we can do that. And I'm sitting there going, well, shit, I've come out of banking. My, you know, my party banking is international trade finance. And I'm sitting there, this is like a year ago or more, going think, Probably out of all of the things, apart from you know what I already had in my mind, if I was going to give an idea, I'd say international trade finance and the supply chain process would be the absolute, absolutely the most perfect thing to apply blockchain to, because it involves all of these you know lack of trust and custodian type um, issues that you're trying to solve across international borders with payments and with documents and with you know this proof stuff that you need, right? And, you know, it's done, it's, it's been, it's always been processed using letters of credit, you know, documentary collections and bills of lading and insurance documents and certifications that pass back and forth through the system. It's been done like that for 100 years, right? And, and it hasn't changed. And uh, yet, um, in the last probably 10 years, a lot of those individual components are being um, digitized. So you've got electronic bills, you've got um, you know, electronic um, insurance documents, you've got electronic um, quality certifications, um, you've got a whole lot of the stuff that's been digitised, but the whole thing is not end-to-end -end put together. Right? <laughs> and so I put my hand up and said, you know, well, this is, here's a, here's a prime, prime use case. You know, if anybody wants to have a crack at it, I'm not going to do it because I'm out of that banking part of it. But, um, but really, um, it's not something an external party can easily solve. That, that particular use case because you actually need all of the banks to participate because they're the custodians of finance, right? So it actually really needs to be built from an internal banking, bank and bank, bank to bank kind of solution as opposed to you know, the proposition that I have, which is, can be applied to anybody. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny because when I first uh, took interest in in Bitcoin, I was at uh, I was at a, a family dinner and there's the, there was this guy there who was the uh, the general manager of a major uh, Apple exporter, Packer and exporter in uh, in Hawke's Bay, which is where I'm from, and um, and I mentioned Bitcoin to him, and he's just like, ah. Oh. Oh, well, that's, you know, bloody hell, that's what we've been needing for ages. And of course, it would have to be come from, because no one would ever, no one would ever come to agreement about what, what, who was going to be the person to actually make the, uh, the, you know, the international unit of trade. You know, this is, the, we've been yeah. waiting for this. And, and, uh, and of course, of course, it's not going to be Bitcoin, but, um, it's not going to be Bitcoin. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but it's, it's, it's interesting to see how quick, it was interesting to see how quickly, he uh, he leapt on the idea, and um, so hopefully, hopefully, we'll see something like that happen soon. 
Well, I think that uh, you know, the um, part of that uh, R3 consortium um, is trying to address international trade stuff. And I think some of the banks, um, uh, a smaller group of the banks inside that consortium are, are passing trade transactions already. Um, I think there's about five or six of them. I think Santander is one of them. I think maybe um, who else is there? Uh, and not, it's not RBS, but there's a there's a few of them that are that are doing international trade um, uh, prototype type transactions or testing transactions um, to see if they can make that work, which would be absolutely fantastic. But I think um, what would what they really need, I think what the whole world really needs, is for the governments to get behind cryptocurrency and start seriously thinking about issuing um, you know, native cryptocurrency, so the crypto Aussie dollar, crypto pound, crypto US dollar. And, and I think once they take that leap of faith, right, um, the whole blockchain capability, blockchain industry will catapult forward at light speed, right? Because once you start taking out the um, cross-currency, cross-cryptocurrency, um, exchange risk, you take that out of the equation, uh, and uh, it suddenly becomes a hell of a lot easier. It also becomes a hell of a lot easier to start using some of the um, the real full full capability of smart contracts on the Ethereum blockchain. Once you can start passing uh, digital currency through actual Solidity code and through the through the contracts, as opposed to having to either pass the transaction through Ether or, or some other way. That's really when the whole thing starts to move. Hey, well, thanks a bunch for your insight, John. This has been really, uh, really educational, and it's it's great to hear. It's great to hear the the perspective of someone from the banking industry in Australia. My pleasure. It's great talking to you. Some of today's music was provided by Dreamers Delight. This has been the Ether Review. Visit etherreview.info for more episodes, email contact at etherreview.info or follow us on Twitter at etherreview. <laughs>